What went down in the Seahawks war room during draft weekend with some new intel coming courtesy of John Boy of Seahawks.com. We're going to put some of the pieces together on our latest installment of Locked on Seahawks. You are locked on Seahawks. Your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network. Your team every day. Greetings 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Thanks for joining us for our Thursday episode. And as always, thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We're getting closer to OTAs, but still plenty of draft talk. Some new insight coming from John Boyle on Seahawks.com. Some things that happened in the war room. I'm going to be breaking that down with some of my own observations and some intel that I had during the draft process. It's going to be fun putting all those pieces together as we get closer to the players returning to the field for OTAs. Plus, I'm going to take a deeper dive into the upcoming quarterback competition, Drew Locke and Geno Smith, who has the edge looking at a number of different categories. Now for your lead story here on Locked on Seahawks. The Seahawks have taken a flyer on a couple of veteran defenders over the past couple of months. DeMonte Casey being one notable one, a longtime safety for the Falcons last year, played for the Cowboys and was a starter. Ultimately, he went to the Pittsburgh Steelers, but Seattle has been looking for some depth and they continued that hunt today with a name that, quite frankly, I had not heard for a while. George Iloka, a former fifth-round pick out of Boise State, was a five-year starter for the Cincinnati Bengals, according to Mike Garofolo of NFL Network. Iloka worked out for the Seahawks today under the guise that he is going to now be a cover linebacker. And what really makes this such a fascinating story for the Seahawks and George Iloka, this is a guy that has had a really interesting career path in the NFL. As I mentioned, he was a fifth-round pick out of Boise State back in 2012. Didn't play a lot of snaps for the Bengals as a rookie. But then, the next five years, wasn't a pro bowler, but was a very good starter for Cincinnati. 227 solo tackles, nine interceptions, 23 pass breakups, nine tackles for loss in 76 starts during that span. And I think only one of those seasons he did not play all 16 games. So up to that point, he was very durable. He gave the Bengals a lot of good snaps. And what makes him fun is he's six foot four, 225 pounds. This was one of those new era safeties that was built like Cam Chancellor coming into the league. And he was drafted on day three like Cam Chancellor has not had the success that Bam Bam did for the Seahawks. This is not a all pro caliber player, but certainly was a quality starter for the Bengals. And he's had kind of an interesting twist to his career since that point because the Bengals they were in a situation where they felt they needed to open up some cap space. They were starting to reload, rebuild in 2018. And this is only a couple of years after Iloka signed a long extension with them. And they cut him in the middle of training camp, landed with the Minnesota Vikings. Mike Zimmer was their coach at the time. He was the defensive coordinator for Cincinnati for the first couple of years that Iloka was in the NFL. So they were familiar with one another. And he played in all 16 games, only started three of those games for the Vikings, though, in 2018. Had 16 tackles, the second lowest total of his career. Didn't play for anyone in 2019. The Cowboys cut him coming out of the preseason. Nobody else signed him, so he sat out in 2019. Typically, when a player doesn't play for a team, 
because he just doesn't have a team like that, it's very difficult to get back into the league. And yet that is what Iloka did. He came back in 2020, tried out for the Vikings again, and he made their team after a brief while in the practice squad, got called up to the roster, played in four games, and then tore his ACL. Missed the rest of the season, had six tackles in those four games, and then didn't play at all last year. So he's now 32 years old. He's getting ready to try to change positions again at his size, six foot four, 225 pounds. In today's NFL, that's solid linebacker size, particularly if you're talking about a guy that's only going to be playing on passing downs as a sub package defender. So there is some intrigue there. And you look at Seattle's depth chart. If everybody's healthy at safety, they're in great shape. But Jamal Adams and Quandre Diggs are coming off of surgeries. They're expected to be ready for training camp, but they are coming off of injuries and had surgeries. Marquise Blair also missed most of last season with a knee issue. He still had some issues recently, according to Pete Carroll, that he's trying to work through. So his status for the start of training camp may be a little bit up in the air. We'll see. There's still a lot of time until report day. He should be ready to go. But nonetheless, they've got some injury concerns in that position. So if they wanted to consider Iloka as a strong safety still, he can play some special teams, played a lot of snaps for the Vikings on special teams, his full season there in 2018. It could make some sense. And when you look at linebacker, obviously with Bobby Wagner getting released and having Ben Burkirvan and John Radigan coming back from ACL tears, there's some depth concerns at that position too. So while Iloka might not have the speed that he used to, he might have lost a few steps because of the injuries, the fact he's getting to be an older player that maybe would prevent him from being a quality safety at this point. I would still think that he has enough athleticism that he could play as a cover linebacker. I'm not saying they're going to sign him. I'd actually still be kind of surprised, but this is one of those kick the tires, see what he still has. If he had a really good workout, clearly the Seahawks just giving him this opportunity, they saw something in him, and he's a player that has started a lot of games in the NFL. So he could make some sense for the Seahawks to potentially bring in, at least have him in for OTAs and see where he fits in. If he does well, then maybe you could have him come back and he could be in training camp with you and have a chance to maybe make this football team. And so we'll see what ends up happening, but this is certainly a fascinating development for the Seahawks. And they've done this again with a few other guys this offseason. didn't sign any of them. Iloka, I would figure would be a veteran minimum because he's been out of the league, but what a story that would be to not only one time sit out a year away from the game and come back, but to do it twice. That's what George Iloka is trying to do. That'd be a very rare accomplishment. So we'll see what happens. But this is something to monitor in coming days. Coming up next in the second quarter here on our Thursday show, some new intel coming from John Boyle on Seahawks.com, pulling back the curtains a bit on what happened on draft weekend the first couple of days of the draft. I will be breaking it all down coming up here in our next segment. I love brownies. The best part, brownie batter. Sometimes I eat half the batter just while I'm making the brownies. In fact, that'd be most of the time. Now imagine if you could devour that batter while also getting a bunch of protein. You're in luck because Built has a new creation, and this one is better than ever, introducing the brownie batter puff. This puff takes protein bars to a whole new level, and they're available right now on Built.com. Have you tried Built Puffs yet? I'm not sure what you're waiting for if you haven't. Puffs are a chocolate-covered marshmallow on steroids with just 140 calories, 17 grams of protein, and only 7 grams of sugar. Brownie batter puffs are the perfect pick-me-up for any day and won't obliterate your diet like a Cam Chancellor hit stick. All Built Puffs are covered in 100% real chocolate, and that means that with Built, you can eat healthy and actually enjoy doing it. 
The brownie batter puffs will have you completely forget that you are eating a protein bar. No need to pinch yourself because this isn't a dream. Visit Built.com to get brownie batter puffs now. Go to Built.com and use the promo code LOCK15 and get 15% off your order. That's LOCK15 at Built.com for 15% off your next order. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Thursday edition. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Thanks, as always, for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. What typically happens in the NFL draft room stays in the NFL draft room. You don't get a lot of leaks coming out during draft weekend where reporters are able to get access to what's really going on behind the scenes. It's a steel curtain, but the Seahawks actually opened up that curtain a little bit now a few weeks removed from the draft, and John Boyle, the Seahawks.com reporter, was able to outline some really intriguing details from what went down during the first three rounds of the draft late last month. And I thought this was interesting because some of the stuff that was revealed in the article, if you hadn't checked it out, make sure to go to Seahawks.com. It's really good. John does an excellent job for the Seahawks website. But make sure you check it out. There were some details there that matched with some things that Rob and I have talked about on the show. And there were some new details that I think when you put the pieces together – make this situation really fascinating. So let's look at what was said in this particular article that stood out. The first pointer, looking at the first round. Seattle, there had been some murmurs while this was going on, and I remember early in the first round thinking that there was a chance the Seahawks might trade up because they needed a tackle, and this is a great tackle class. But what I was wondering is who's going to ultimately be the one that they want to trade up to get? And according to John Boyle, they attempted to trade up with the New York Giants to number seven overall, and Charles Cross was likely the target because Equanu ended up being picked by the Panthers at number six. And at that point, talks between the Giants and the Seahawks, they talked a little bit longer and they weren't able to strike a deal. But it's very evident based on the report from John Boyle that the Seahawks had Charles Cross ahead of Evan Neal the tackle from Alabama, which I find fascinating because Neil had a really good college career. He played both tackle spots. He played guard and played all those spots at a high level. Alabama obviously kicks out really good pro players, but it's very evident that Charles Cross was their number two tackle. If Aquanu would have fallen, I think he was their number one guy based on what I had been told. And plus the intel that was in this article from Boyle hinted at that, but Cross was the guy they really wanted. And Ultimately, they decided not to make that trade with the Giants. The Giants took Neal, and so then John Schneider's sweating it out at pick number eight, thinking, are the Falcons going to take our guy? Are they going to have a team that's going to leapfrog him into number eight and draft Charles Cross? And luckily, that did not happen. So they ended up getting their guy, staying put at number nine. There were a few teams that tried to trade up when they were on the clock, and Schneider just decided, let's get our guy. We have our player here. Let's not mess around. A little different approach than what they have done in previous seasons and then late in the first round this is the other thing that I found really fascinating about the way that this draft played out there was some talk late in the first round about Seattle maybe trading back up for a quarterback but that's not really what was going on behind the scenes according to Boyle they were working the phones with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at pick 27 and this was a popular spot that Rob and I did a couple of mock drafts trading up with the Buccaneers because They didn't have a ton of draft picks after the first round. They were trying to recoup some of those picks to continue building around their win-now football team. So it made some sense for them to trade out of that spot. And for Seattle, the guy that I have been told 
for weeks was a target there. Tyler Linderbaum, the center out of Iowa, they could have doubled up on the offensive line, but Linderbaum went to the Ravens at number 25. So that eliminated any possibility they were going to trade with the Buccaneers at spot number 27. Tampa Bay ended up trading with Jacksonville. Spot number 28, the Green Bay Packers. John Schneider called his former employers and ended up striking a conversation with them. So now the big question is with Linderbaum being off the board, who was John Schneider trying to get moving back up into the back half of the first round? And the answer is a pass rusher, but maybe it's not the one that you're thinking. George Karloft is from Purdue, was still on the board. The Chiefs took him a few picks after that. But I've been told that Arnold Ebicady from Penn State was the one that they really wanted. And that's what they were trying to do. And Ebicady and Boye Mafe both ended up not getting picked in the first round. So the Seahawks didn't trade back in. They didn't lose either one of those top two pass rushers on their board going into day two. They felt like they had a good chance to get one of those players. And now that takes us to day two. Ebicady and Mafe are still on the board. You've still got some offensive linemen. you got a couple running backs, including Brees Hall, that the Seahawks, according to John Boyle, really liked and had on their draft board. So maybe Rob and I didn't think this was going to happen, but, you know, Rob actually did a few mocks with the second-round running back. So ends up he was right on that one. The Seahawks were certainly looking in that range to get their next feature running back. And once Brees Hall came off the board, Things started to get pretty serious in that war room. Then Arnold Ebicady gets taken by the Atlanta Falcons with the 38th pick. They traded up with the New York Giants. And so now the Seahawks, they've lost out on a running back they really liked. They lost out on their top pass rusher that was still available. So there's one pick till they're on the board. And they're just hoping that they don't have to lose their man, Boye Mafe, at pick number 40. And they got lucky. The Chicago Bears took a receiver. At pick number 39, Mafe is still there on the board, jumping for jubilation because they get the Minnesota pass rusher. That pick was easily made. Now, where the debate comes into play, and I think this is the most fascinating part of the article that Boyle kicked out yesterday, what the Seahawks were going to do at pick 41. Because I believe, based on what I've been told since that article came out, that Brees Paul would have likely been the selection there if the Jets would not have picked him at 36 overall. If he was still on the board, they would have gone with Brees Hall. But since Hall was no longer available, Ken Walker III was a very close second that was high on their draft board. They also had a few offensive linemen that they were looking at. Now, that was not detailed by Boyle. We don't know who, but I'm going to suggest that Cam Jurgens, the center out of Nebraska, was a player that they were thinking about at that spot. They wanted Linderbaum. Jurgens was probably the next center in line. He was still available at that point. And Abraham Lucas, the Seahawks had very high on their draft board, but they had already taken a tackle. So ultimately, they brought Shane Waldron in and they reached the verdict let's take the running back. And so they picked Kenneth Walker. And he was their 41st selection. Now you've got a big gap. You've got 30 picks left to figure out what you're going to do at pick number 72. And that's where Abraham Lucas comes into play. And this really all is tied together really well. Because as I just mentioned, I think Abraham Lucas was the player that the Seahawks were talking about at the tackle position at at pick number 41. They were thinking about doubling up and picking two of those guys in their first three picks, and why not? They had three tackles on their entire roster going into this draft. 
They decided to go with Walker, and probably the feeling inside that room was, well, we missed out on our chance on Abraham Lucas and Cam Jurgens, the other one that I think probably was being discussed. No proof of that, but he's a player that I think that the Seahawks had a lot of interest in. They met with him at the Senior Bowl. Nonetheless, the Seahawks end up getting back into the lower 70s. They're a few picks away, and Abraham Lucas is still there. There's a reason why scout Chad Graff ended up jumping up on the table once the Bears picked a receiver. And they're realizing we got a great opportunity here. We can get Abraham Lucas at pick 72 when we were thinking about picking him at pick 41. So Seattle's probably leaving day two. Like We got three second-round players with our three selections. They had a higher grade than some teams on Lucas, and there was a big gap there. There was only one other tackle picked between pick 41 and pick 72. So the Seahawks were fortunate from that perspective. They were able to get the player that they coveted at that spot and so I think it's really fascinating when you consider how things played out. What would have happened at the end of the first round if Tyler Linderbaum isn't picked by the Ravens at 25? What if he's still there at 27? The Seahawks might be willing to give up pick 72 to jump up and get Tyler Linderbaum, and now they've got their long-term center. Or what if Arnold Ebicady, this is to me the big what if, if Arnold Ebicady or Boye Mafe, if one of those players would have been picked in the mid to late 20s, I think you would have seen some urgency from John Schneider. He was already working the phones, but if he thought, wow, we are now 12, 13, 14 picks away, and one of our top two pass rushers is already gone, I think they would have traded back into the end of the first round. But the way things ended up playing out, it's okay that the Green Bay Packers ultimately decided, you know what, we're staying put and we're picking here. It's fine they couldn't work something out with the Buccaneers. They still got Boye Mafe. They got the running back, their second running back that they had on their board assuming that he was ahead of Bruce, uh, ahead of Brees Hall. And they were able to get Abraham Lucas, a player that they had a much higher grade on than maybe some other teams did. They were able to get him at pick 72 when they probably were considering him at pick 41. So there's a number of dominoes there, and I'm sure there's some other details. There might have been a few other players that were being considered that weren't mentioned in Boyle's article. But it's fun to put these pieces together, especially when you consider – some of the things that had been reported leading up to the draft. Go back to the Senior Bowl. A number of these guys met with the Seahawks. Arnold Ebicady and Boye Mafe both met with them at the Combine. And then Mafe had a top 30 visit last month flying out to the Pacific Northwest. So the Seahawks did their due diligence. And those visits don't always mean a lot when you're looking at the players teams are going to select. But in this instance, the Seahawks showed their hand. I mean, those were two players they were clearly very interested in. And they felt were going to potentially be available to them when they had those two second round picks. And they were luckily able to get one. As Boyle pointed out in the article, maybe Ebicady getting picked at 38 took a little bit of the wind out of their sails for a moment because they started thinking we could lose both these guys on consecutive picks. And luckily, Boye Mafe was available there for them in pick number 40. So just a really fascinating turn of events. And a lot of insight that you don't always get. Again, a lot of times what happens in the draft room stays in the draft room, and there's a lot of stuff that we don't know about. But this certainly helps put a lot of the pieces together on how the Seahawks and John Schneider and company were thinking throughout this process and ultimately made their four selections in the first three rounds. Coming up next here on our Thursday edition of Locked on Seahawks, the quarterback position, there's a major competition brewing. Assuming the Seahawks don't add another player to the position 
Geno Smith and Drew Locke are going to be duking it out to replace Russell Wilson under center. Who has the edge? I'm going to be taking a look at a number of different categories, comparing the two players and giving some hints on who I think might have the edge at this point as we get ready for the start of OTAs. Our partners at Bet Online continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find all the latest odds, news, and sports developments, including this year's basketball playoffs, Major League Baseball scores, fights, and even next season's NFL futures. Bet Online is your continued source for all your sporting and waging informational needs, from live betting to playoffs, esports, and more. Head to their website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in action. Bet Online, where the game starts. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Thursday edition. This is your host, Corbin Smith. As always, thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first lesson five days a week. We've got OTAs coming up starting on Monday, the 23rd. The Seahawks will be back on the practice field. They will have 10 of those. And the schedule is a little different this year. They have their mandatory mini camp in the middle of OTAs. Typically, it's at the tail end of OTAs. And Pete Carroll didn't really elaborate when we asked him about that at rookie minicamp, why they made that change. It seemed like he was thinking we were asking about rookie minicamp being in a different date, confused about the question, whatnot. But they've rearranged the schedule. Maybe it's to get more players to come out for mandatory minicamp. Whatever the case, they decided to switch that up. But they're going to start OTAs. And there's a number of question marks for this football team that's entering a new era. And obviously, Priority number one is trying to figure out who is going to be your quarterback in week one. The Seahawks didn't draft a quarterback. As I just mentioned with their draft strategy, that was never really something that was considered in those first three rounds, at least based on what we know. They were not looking at any of those top quarterbacks. They were loading up at other positions, particularly the offensive line and the pass rush. They got the running back as well. And Baker Mayfield, Cleveland's dangling him out there trying to get somebody to bite, but John Schneider's not falling for it. He's not bidding against himself. If Mayfield gets cut, then maybe that gets revisited as a possibility. But right now, it looks like Geno Smith and Drew Locke are going to be the two quarterbacks going against each other when OTAs open on Monday, certainly, and probably in training camp in the preseason. And they're going to be biting for that starting job previously held the last decade by Russell Wilson. So the real question here is, who holds the advantage? Now, one of the things that's been floated around online today, there's been some reports that the Seahawks have indicated that Geno Smith has an edge to start in week one. That is not what has been said by Carroll or offensive coordinator Shane Waldron. They've said that he's got the advantage right now because he's familiar with the offense. He played in the system last year, but nothing has been said suggesting that he's got a heads up to start in week one. We are months away from that decision being made, so Seahawks are not even going to be delving into that. we got to still get on the field for OTAs and see what happens. But to compare these two quarterbacks, I wrote an article about this today. You can check it out on all Seahawks on SI.com. Make sure to check out the article after you watch the show, but I'm going to dive into a little bit deeper here. I broke down six categories for Geno Smith and Drew Locke, compared their stats from the last year or two against each other, and tried to figure out who's got the edge in each one of these categories, and maybe that can help us piece together who's going to be the starter for the Seahawks in week one. So to kick things off, first category here, the quick passing game, And this is going to be more emphasized for Shane Waldron and company this year due to the fact that you're not going to have Russell Wilson throwing the bombs that he's known for. And you've got two quarterbacks that 
statistically were pretty solid in the short passing game, in particular Geno Smith last year. On throws inside 10 yards from the line of scrimmage, he was 41 for 45, 353 yards, 7.8 yards per attempt, a pair of touchdowns, and he was really good. Seahawks fans are going to love this. He was really good in the middle of the field in that short passing game. 24 for 26 for 251 yards. Didn't miss any of the eight throws. He had outside the left hash for 68 yards in a touchdown. Drew Locke was pretty solid too. 74% completion rate, 50 attempts inside 10 yards for 326 yards, a touchdown and an interception. And then when you're looking at the completion percentage when throwing in less than two and a half seconds, Geno Smith dominated this one, 83% completion rate compared to 69% for Drew Locke. So obviously they both held up pretty well when you're looking at the quick passing game. But in this instance, I got to go with my man, Geno Smith. He's got to get this one. He was the better quarterback in the short intermediate passing game last season was much more consistent. And that leads to the next one, the vertical passing game. Now, when you're looking at the vertical passing game, this is probably one that a lot of fans are going to suspect that Drew Locke has the advantage in because Pete Carroll and John Schneider have been talking about his arm strength, and you can see it on film. This guy does have a hose. He can gun the football. He can throw the ball a mile downfield. He's certainly got the arm talent but it hasn't always played out that way on the field for him. And that's the reason that he's now the second team. There was not consistency there, especially when you look at the numbers last season. He had 21 attempts of 20-plus yards last year, and he completed just seven of them. That's not good. Then you go back to the year before, he tied for the NFL lead for interceptions thrown on passes of 20-plus yards. He actually tied with Tom Brady. The difference, Tom Brady threw 15 touchdowns on such passes. Drew Locke only threw three. So really the only comparison there, they both threw seven interceptions on deep balls. But he has not been efficient on those throws. And when you look at Geno Smith in the deep passing game, Seattle didn't rely on him very much last year in that capacity. They didn't ask him to throw the ball in his four games he played downfield much. He only had 11 pass attempts longer than 20 yards. He completed five of them for 183 yards. 84 of those came on one throw to DK Metcalf, but still. 16.6 yards per attempt, a pair of touchdowns. And those numbers would be significantly better if not for an interception that was not his fault. It was the only pick he threw in the four games he played. And Tyler Lockett just tripped coming out of his break in the fourth quarter against the Rams. That's not Geno Smith's fault. You take that out of the equation, he has pretty darn good numbers in the deep passing game. So while I think Drew Locke still has a lot of upside in this regard, I got to give Geno Smith the nod on this one too. He has been the more polished deep ball passer. So right now he's up to nothing in quick passing game and vertical passing game. Now let's look at mobility and escapability with Drew Locke and Geno Smith. Now both these guys are pretty athletic. Coming out of West Virginia, Geno Smith ran a 4.58 40-yard dash. That's not much slower than what Russell Wilson ran coming out of Wisconsin. So a very similar athlete in terms of straight-line speed. And Drew Locke at 6'4", 228 pounds, coming out of Missouri, ran a 4.69, which is pretty impressive for a quarterback of his size. So both these quarterbacks have mobility. They have escapability, different types of athletes, obviously. And Geno Smith, when he was younger, was a faster athlete. His rookie year, he had 
366 rushing yards and six rushing touchdowns. He does not tuck and run near as much at this point in his career, though. He's going to be 32 years old soon. So not that he's an old man by any means, but at this stage of his career, probably not something he's going to do as much. Whereas Drew Locke the last two years has ran for five touchdowns and he's averaged four yards per carry in his career. Maybe not the best number you've seen, but he's capable of escaping the pocket, rolling out and creating with his legs. I think he's more likely to do that given the stage of his career being 25, a younger player that's at his athletic peak. I just think he's more likely to do that. He also had a better percentage of pressures where he was able to escape 23% compared to 29% that ended up turning into sacks. And so those are pretty close. But I think when you look at the escapability, you look at the mobility, this one actually, I'm going to have to give it to Drew Locke, which is going to surprise some people because he is the bigger quarterback, but he has very underrated athleticism. And I think that's something else that drew the Seahawks interest. They're going to find ways to get him involved that way. He's not going to do some of the stuff that Russell Wilson did, obviously, but you can mix in some run plays, some boot action with him, and he has the ability to tuck and run. Next category here, under pressure versus the blitz. This is the one area you look statistically for Geno Smith in the four games he played in last year that he was abysmal. There's no question about it. You look at the numbers, nine for 28 on pass attempts where he had pressure in his face, 68 yards, 2.4 yards per attempt. And his lone interception came on a play where he was flushed from the pocket. And obviously, like I said, that was not his fault, really. He made a good decision. The receiver fell down. But still, even with that play considered, did not have good numbers against pressure. He also took 13 sacks. And that's a lot when you consider that he held onto the ball on average 3.71 seconds per pass. So the Seahawks front line was giving him decent pass protection some of the time. And Pete Carroll talked about this. Sometimes there was immediate pressure and sometimes Gino was just holding on to the ball too much. Drew Locke was not much better against pressure last year, but he completed almost 50% of his throws, 6.4 yards per attempt, a touchdown, did throw two interceptions, and he only took nine sacks, a little better getting the football out of his hands with a 3.19 second average on his throws. So I think when you look at those numbers and compare them, neither one of these guys were lighting the world on fire when they had pressure coming at him last year. But Drew Locke's numbers overall are a bit better. And you look at the game film, it seemed like he did a little better job of distributing the football and getting it out of his hands. And so in this instance, I actually think that Drew Locke gets this one as well. So we're all knotted up at two to two. Drew Locke getting the mobility and under pressure blitz. He, he was more effective when teams sent a fifth or more rushers against him. And now it leads to one that I think might be one of the most important ones. When you're talking about a run first football team like the Seattle Seahawks, play action passing is critical. And Geno Smith last year completed 14 out of 22 passes for 246 yards almost 11 and a half yards per attempt, three touchdowns and no picks. His passer rating on play action plays last year was 141.3. And that's with nearly half of his dropbacks being under pressure and getting a sack six times. So while his pressure numbers I mentioned before were not good, ironically, when he was pressured on play action, he actually was very effective last year. Now you look at Drew Locke, he was not near as good. 14 for 28, so a 50% completion rate, 7.9 yards per attempt, no touchdowns, and an interception. Passer rating was a pedestrian 
0.8. So he certainly was not as effective. I think part of this was also pressure, though. Drew Locke on his play-action plays, just like Geno Smith, 50% of the time that he dropped back on play-action, he had pressure in his face. So that certainly impacted the numbers. There were some drops. But overall, Geno Smith was much better in the play-action passing game in a pretty similar sample size. Drew Locke played in six games last year, and Geno Smith ended up playing in four, started three of those games. So, you know, you go back to Drew Locke's rookie year, he was very effective on play-action. You're putting him in an offense where he's going to be running very similar concepts to his rookie year. Maybe he bounces back and does well on play action again. But the last couple of years, particularly last year, he did not handle that well. And Geno Smith, that was one of the strengths for him in those four games. And so I've got to give this one to Geno, which leads us to our final one here. Third down productivity. The Seahawks were horrific on third down most of last year. They ended up finishing outside of the bottom five. The last few weeks, Russell Wilson and company had a couple really good games, and that gave them an opportunity to jump up the list some. But most of the year, they were down with the likes of Jacksonville and Chicago. You know, not exactly your offensive juggernauts in the NFL And this was a persistent problem. And I think Pete Carroll, everybody might remember, there was the press conference after a game where he actually walked off the podium, which is just not like Pete Carroll at all. And a lot of that had to do with the consistent questions about the third down struggles. And he just didn't have any more answers at that point. It was a problem for Russell Wilson throughout his time in Seattle. But last year really was magnified. And you add an injury. So last year, Seattle finished in the bottom 10 in third down percentage. Most of the year, they were in the bottom three. I can't pick a winner for this one because both Geno Smith and Drew Locke were terrible on third down last year. The Chicago Bears finished dead last in the NFL with a 34.2% conversion rate on third down. Neither Geno Smith nor Drew Locke led their teams to higher percentages. In fact, they were several points below the Chicago Bears average for the season. Geno Smith completed almost 70% of his throws on third down. He was an effective passer in that regard, but they didn't move the chains very often, only had eight conversions via pass on third down. And ultimately his third down conversion rate, adding all the sacks he took was just 31%. Meanwhile, Drew Locke was even worse passing the football in the low twenties for third down conversion rate. His saving grace though, he ended up picking up four first downs with his legs as a runner, and that pushed the conversion rate up to 28%. Those are still very woeful numbers. So this is one that, you know, I was trying to think, who do I give this to? Because Geno Smith was the more efficient passer, but still didn't move the chains very much. And Drew Locke was terrible moving the chains with his arm, but he was able to do some stuff with his legs that Geno Smith didn't do. And so ultimately I decided when you have two numbers that are that bad, uh, that's got to be a draw. I can't give that one to either guy. And it's unfortunate because that's not how I usually play. And I like to give a win to somebody, but I just couldn't lean one way or the other with both of them having pretty dismal third down numbers. So what do these numbers mean for where this competition is heading? It only means so much because obviously Drew Locke has not played in Seattle. He's the first time with Shane Waldron and he had some good success his rookie year with a similar offensive scheme. So maybe he will rediscover with a change of scenery what made him a four and one record starter his rookie year. And maybe he'll find that in Seattle. He's got the physical tools. There is some mystery 
around Drew Locke. And I think that's his advantage going into this, is that the Seahawks know he's got the physical tools. They loved him coming out of Missouri in the draft. He just hasn't put it together in the NFL to the point that he lost his job to Teddy Bridgewater last year. So, you know, that's hitting rock bottom. Is he going to be able to bounce back from that? The Seahawks, I think, are going to give him every opportunity to win this job because they truly believe in him. I think that the words coming out of Pete, uh, Pete Carroll and John Schneider's mouths, they're 100% genuine at this point with the moves they've made. Their actions have spoke louder than even the words. They want Drew Locke to be the guy. At the same time, in terms of numbers and film, Geno Smith is the more polished passer. He showed that last year in all facets, whether it's the quick strike passing game, the deep ball, play action passing. He was the superior passer. He knows the offense. And Seahawks, if they're truly wanting to surprise people and compete this year, win a bunch of games, then I don't think it's going to matter ultimately at the end of the day that Drew Locke's gotten all the hype that he has. If it's all about competing as the Seahawks boast, if Geno Smith comes out and he's just a better player, you start him and you can still have a plan to draft a quarterback next year. But this truly is a toss-up. And I think you know, you look at the numbers that I posted. Obviously, Geno Smith won three categories. They were all key passing ones. But the under pressure and mobility stuff is still very important too, especially with the fact they could have two rookie tackles starting in front of whoever is under center. So I think when you consider all those things, this is a very even competition. Geno Smith's got that advantage going into OTAs, knowing the system but if Drew Locke is able to catch up quickly and really uh, meshes with Shane Waldron in this scheme and starts to figure things out, then he could very well win this job too. So I don't think that these numbers, they matter a little bit. It's obviously important to look at that context, but this is a really great opportunity for Drew Locke to hit the reset button, show what he can do. And for Geno Smith, he hasn't been a starter for a number of years. This is his maybe last opportunity to get that opportunity to be the guy. And so there's a lot at stake for both of these players, and that is a chance to yield some pretty good results for the Seahawks. It could also be a disaster, and I think there's a lot of football people out there that are looking at it that way before they even take the field. And so there's some intrigue. There's certainly some concern, but two quarterbacks with a little bit different skill sets, different stages of their careers, it should be a pretty exciting competition that kicks off on Monday with the start of OTAs. As always, thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Make sure to check out the Locked On NFL podcast for your second listen. The schedule may be dark, but the NFL never stops, and neither does Locked On NFL. Get insights and opinions from hosts including Ross Jackson, Chris Carter, and Tony Wiggins, plus local Locked On NFL hosts repping all 32 squads. There's no off-season for real fans, so make sure you're subscribed to the Lockdown NFL podcast on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter, Corbin Smith NFL. Make sure to check out Locked On Seahawks on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and of course, streaming five days a week on YouTube. Coming up on our Blue Friday episode, I'll be tackling your questions in our weekly mailbag and checking out a couple of defensive-related topics heading into Monday's start of OTAs for the Seahawks. Thanks for listening in. Enjoy the rest of your Thursday. Go Hawks.